So today the Christian church celebrates the transfiguration. Uh, that means we're actually going to jump ahead in the text of Mark. We've been walking through Mark chapter one the last couple of weeks. We're going to shift all the way forward to Mark chapter nine today. So I'll read the text and then we'll talk about it. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. This is the gospel of the Lord. So a reminder to get your notes sheet out so you can take some notes on God's word today. You can find the link for that in the description of the video or in our notes section on our online portal. Or if you're watching this later, you can find it in the description of the podcast or video. Uh, on there, you're going to notice that we're going to focus primarily on the transfiguration account. And we're actually going to leave all that stuff about the disciples talking with Jesus about Elijah and Elijah coming first for our life group discussion sheet. So make sure you take some time to work through that and get the rest of the text. We're just going to focus on the first part of the text today. So today is the Transfiguration Sunday, and uh, there's a reason that this uh, Sunday finds this place in what we call the church year. So the, the church year is a calendar that the, the Christian church uses to go through the entire life, work, and words of Jesus. So you may be familiar with this. We're a church that generally follows the, uh, the church year. Uh, the church year starts with Advent and Christmas. Right? So it makes sense. The birth of Jesus in December, we start celebrating that. That's the beginning of our church year. Then after Christmas, we spend a couple weeks. We're going through the uh, works of Jesus. So these are the seasons of Epiphany and Lent. Um, Epiphany is focused a lot on Jesus' miracles. Lent is focused a lot on Jesus as he starts to move towards the cross. Then we have the season of Holy Week, which includes Good Friday and Easter. So it makes sense, right? Jesus is born, Jesus does what he does on earth, and then he dies and rises again. And then we have this really long season of the church year, which goes through the end of spring all the way until we get back to December and start the church year over called Pentecost, where we focus primarily on the words of Jesus and how those words leave, lead us to live as the church. So the place that we are today is actually in the Epiphany Lent section, right actually between those two seasons. The Transfiguration is the last Sunday of the Epiphany season before we go into the Lenten season. And there's a couple reasons why this Sunday is perched right here in the church here. Uh, one of them is just practical and another one is theological. The practical reason is this is just the next thing that happened in Jesus' life. <laughs> and if you're reading Mark's gospel, remember we said uh, there's the flow of those first eight chapters where he's doing all his miracles. And then we get chapter nine, right? Where this transfiguration happens. So it's just chronological. 
Um, but there's a deeper theological reason as to why we put this Sunday right here in the church here. And it's wrapped up in those first words from the text where it says, after six days. So when you read something like that in the Bible, after six days, what you immediately have to realize is that what is going to happen next is intimately connected to what happened right before it. Okay. So let's remember the context. Like I said, in Mark chapter one, all the way until halfway through Mark chapter eight, we're getting Jesus on display as the powerful Messiah, right? He's doing all these miracles. He's healing people, driving out demons, the whole thing. And then we said that there's this sort of interlude that comes where Jesus says three times, I'm going to die, right? He's taking a hard left turn and saying, you've seen all this power. You believe that I'm the Messiah. Now let me instruct you on something that the Messiah needs to do. He needs to die. And then, of course, he finishes up with Holy Week, right? Which is him actually going through with that, dying on the cross and coming back to life. Now, remember, our text is in chapter nine. So it's in that interlude. And what has, immediate, has immediately happened six days before this is Jesus' first prediction of his death. And then along with that, he has said, and if you want to follow me, you also must deny yourselves, take up your crosses and follow me. What a buzzkill, eh? <laughs> I mean, like he's gone through all these powerful things that he's done. And then the first thing he says after that is, I'm going to die. And if you want to come along, you also need to be willing to die. You need to be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But what Mark wants you to realize is that that is in the background as the transfiguration account happens. And so here's the theological thrust of what Mark is doing, what the transfiguration is doing. When things look really dark, we always have God's glory to look at. What was going to happen next after the transfiguration was Jesus was going to start that long road to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And the disciples were going to follow along and they were actually going to leave him. They weren't going to deny themselves, but through it all, they had in the back of their minds, this glory that they had seen. And so you can kind of think of it as like on top of a mountain, both literally and metaphorically. As we're ramping up to see Jesus as the Messiah, we see him in his glory. But then as we go back down the mountain into the darkness of this world, we remember the glory that's on top of that mountain. And so really what transfiguration does for us is it answers this question. How do we deal with suffering as Christians? When we're in this dark world that you know, and I know the world that makes us hurt, that makes us frustrated, that disappoints us regularly. How do we deal with that? As the disciples and Jesus took the road to the cross, how did they remember this glory and how did that influence how they, they lived? So we're going to work out some of the implications of that in the second point of the sermon today. Um, but for now, we'll pause on that because we have another point we want to get to before that. So four points today that I'm going to work through on your notes sheet. Um, they are Moses and Elijah, the glory to be revealed, God speaks and get off the mountain. Okay, so the first point, Moses and Elijah. Um, right in the text, it says that when Jesus is being transfigured, it says, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Uh, so what's the significance of these two guys? Why do they show up here? I mean, any number of Old Testament characters could have shown up with Jesus as he was being transfigured or no characters could have shown up with Jesus as he was being transfigured. What's the importance of these two guys? Well, the first connection would be that these two guys summarize the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch or the Torah, were at least compiled, maybe even written down by Moses. And they were so closely tied with Moses that the, the Old Testament Christians would actually refer to these books as Moses. Like they would say things like, as it is written in Moses. 
And those were the most important books of the Old Testament for the Christians. So Moses was deeply tied with those books. And when people thought about Moses, they thought about those five books of the Bible. Elijah, on the other hand, is the greatest of the prophets. In doing so, he, he summarizes all the rest of the scriptures, which are the prophetic writings. And so what you very basically have here is the, the law, the Torah, Moses, and the prophets, the prophetic writings, both standing in witness to Jesus. Uh, the way that the Apostle Paul writes it in Romans 3 is this. He says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's like a really good reference on your job resume, right? Like if you're trying to get a job and you have two people who the employer trusts saying, you're really good, you're good for the job, that's going to give you a really good opportunity to get the job. In the same way, Jesus is the one to whom really the whole Old Testament is pointing. But there's a second part to this. It goes a little bit deeper because Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament have two really unique encounters with God on mountains. The first of those is Moses in Exodus 19. So Moses goes up Mount Sinai and on the top of Mount Sinai, God talks to him and gives him the 10 commandments. And then you have Elijah after his showdown with the prophets of Baal in First uh, Kings 17 and 18, he's on the run because Jezebel is trying to kill him. And he goes up Mount Sinai, the same mountain. And there he prays to God and God says, okay, I'm going to let my glory pass by you. And all sorts of crazy things happen, a fire and an earthquake and a wind. But none of those things were God. What was God was a voice, God speaking to Elijah. And so Moses is on a mountain speaking to God and Elijah is on a mountain speaking to God. And then in the transfiguration, Jesus is up on a mountain and who shows up and who is he talking with? Moses and Elijah. So what is this teaching us? Why are these two guys here? It's teaching us that Jesus is the Messiah, right? He is the one to whom the Old Testament points. And he is God, the same God who showed up on the mountain for Moses and Elijah. And all of the Old Testament points to that. So what's the application for us here? Uh, sometimes people like to pull apart the Old and the New Testament and say, you know, the Old Testament was this God of wrath or, or God of anger and retribution. And the New Testament is the God of love and forgiveness. Absolutely not. If you ever hear that, you got to point into this text because what this text shows us is that the entire Old Testament was pointing forward to the person of Jesus who was going to forgive all sins, who was God in flesh for the sake of all humanity. Moses was looking forward to it with his writings. Elijah was looking forward to it with his preaching and all the prophets were along with him. And this shows up time and time again in the Old Testament. Maybe you remember a couple of years ago, I did a, a series called Tell It Again, which was all Old Testament stories that all point forward to Jesus. If you want to see examples of how that happens in David or Samson or Jericho, like those Old Testament pictures all point forward to the person of Jesus. And you have to have those lenses when you're reading the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is not just the story of a nation who sojourned until they came to Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. No, they were a nation whom God was pulling through by promises that he continued to give them about the Messiah that was coming for them to be their savior. So that's the first point, Moses and Elijah. Then second, the glory to be revealed. Am I borrowing that phrase from Romans 8? Apostle Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to, with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
Uh, so remember I said the thrust theologically of transfiguration is it helps Christians dealing with suffering. And so that's what we're going to talk about here is how does that work out? What are the implications of that for us? Um, now, in order to do that, I think we need to walk through like Mark's flow of thought and then think how that applies to the Christian life. So remember, Mark spends the first eight chapters telling us that Jesus is the Messiah, right? But then his little interlude, his hard turn left is that Jesus has to suffer. And this is unexpected, right? Because he's the Messiah. And it's kind of a double whammy because not only is he the Messiah, who everyone believes is going to be the savior of the world, but he's also God, which means that at one time he was not confined to a human body. He was not confined to things that humans experience, but he had brought himself into that, into some suffering that he had never experienced before for the sake of being our savior, a savior, excuse me. So then after he says he's going to suffer, then we get the, the transfiguration, right? which says that during the suffering, as you continue to walk towards the cross, you can always look back to this point. That's exactly what Jesus would have done, right? As he is walking towards the cross, he could have remembered, this is what God said about me. This is what my father said about me. This is my son whom I love. And then Mark finishes with Jesus rising from the dead to confirm it, which Jesus actually hints at in the text, right? He said, don't tell anybody about this until the son of man has risen from the dead. His whole point is you don't, you're not going to understand the transfiguration unless you understand that the resurrection is coming. And since the resurrection had not yet happened, he said, just hold on to this thought until I finish the picture for you. Okay, so that's Mark's flow of thought. Now think about the Christian life. Uh, every Christian life starts with faith in Jesus as Messiah, right? It uh, happens in one of two ways. Either God preaches the gospel to you enough times until it overwhelms your sinful nature and your rebellious heart and you believe it, or he more graciously just bypasses your sinful nature and baptizes you as a baby and gives you faith. But in any case, what happens inevitably next is that the Christians suffer. Suffering comes to every Christian. And I think there are two reasons for this, and it's kind of a double whammy. Uh, first of all, Christians are more sensitive to the suffering of the world because we know that the world is not just not okay, not just imperfect, but corrupted by sin. And we also know what it was supposed to be, the perfection that God gave it and the perfection that God is going to restore it to. And so in a way, because we have that contrast, we're so much more aware of how evil the world actually is. So we're more sensitive to it. But then on top of that, Satan comes harder against Christians because he doesn't need to get people who don't believe in Jesus to not believe in Jesus. He wants to get you who believe in Jesus to not believe in Jesus. And so he brings more suffering against you to try to get you to despair of your faith and give up on God. And so it's this double whammy, like punching a bruise, right? Like we're more sensitive to it and it's coming harder against us. And if I'm honest, this is why a lot of people leave the Christian faith. Uh, they like the ideas of Christianity, but when it comes to suffering, they can't stand that. They, they think, they have this idea that Christianity is supposed to be, my life is going to be better. I'm going to be more successful. I'm going to be more healthy. I'm going to be more happy. And while in kind of unexpected ways, that does actually happen, what every Christian needs to reckon with is that there is going to be suffering in this world and that that suffering is actually for our good in the long term. By the way, the, uh, the brother of Jesus, James, writes it. Is he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Not if you face trials, whenever you face trials. Because, he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In other words, he says, suffering is good for the Christian. 
When you're suffering, that means God is trying to bring you closer to him, to trust in him more, to rely on his word more. So suffering comes into the life of every Christian. But then the promise for us is that looking to Jesus' glory is going to remind us of the glory that will be revealed. So as we slog through this world of sin and darkness, we have that beautiful beatific vision to look forward to that Jesus, the Messiah, was glorified and is glorified and will be glorified for our eyes on the last day. And we have that promise to give us strength through these dark times until we die. And then we are inevitably risen from the dead. And that's the flow of the Christian life, right? Similar to what Mark does with his flow about Jesus. But here's the good news. We don't just have this text of the transfiguration to look back on and to say, that's the glorious Jesus who's going to come and be with us someday. We actually can say that the transfiguration in a certain sense still happens today. Uh, There is a way in which we have that glory presented to us again, that gives us hope and strength and perseverance in the face of all of our suffering. And so if you're suffering right now, I want you to hear this message the transfiguration is preaching to you. And I'll pull that from our next point, which is that God speaks. So when the transfiguration is happening, God opens his mouth and he says this, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, we've talked already about how Jesus is God's son, right? He is the Messiah and he is God. That's what Moses and Elijah testify to. But let's, let's zoom in on this phrase, whom I love for a second. Uh, is this just like gratuitous Facebook relationship posting? You have any friends like that on social media who like they're dating or, or maybe they just got married and they like unnecessarily post about their spouse and how much they love their spouse. Like we get it. You're married or you're in love. It's cool. We don't really all need to know. It's kind of gross. Is that's what's happening here? Is God like showing off how much he loves Jesus? No, there's a really specific reason why he says this. And it's wrapped up in this question. How do you know that God loves you. The Bible speaks very generally about God's love for us, right? It speaks about how he loves the whole world. He loves all people. But how do you know, you Canadian living in 2021, how do you specifically individually know that God loves you? The answer is, are you in Jesus? Because God loves Jesus. God loves the world, yes, but he loves them in Jesus. And so if you are in Jesus, then you have these specific words said about you by God, the father, this is my son whom I love. Are you in Jesus? I think all Christians would like to believe, yes, I am in Jesus. Well, how do you know? How can you be sure? Do you just believe it ethereally? Or is there something substantive that you can stand on to say, this is how I know I am in Jesus? The answer that the Bible would give you is the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those physical substantive realities, those real things that really happened in history where God said, I connect myself to you right here, right now. So God loves you because you are in Jesus. And that happens Sunday after Sunday when Jesus puts his body and blood into your mouth for the sake of your forgiveness to bind himself to you so that when God sees Jesus, he also sees you. He sees a son whom he loves. I know I harp on this a lot. I know I talk about the Lord's Supper probably every Sunday. There's a really good reason for that. In this world where there is so much spin and there are so many dark intentions 
and there's financial incentives and all sorts of people are trying to get you to believe all sorts of things by telling you messages the way they want to tell you so that you'll believe them. God cuts through all of the white noise and says, there's no spin, no incentive. Here it is, my body and blood for you. Take it and believe it. Cut and dry, black and white, this is it. I don't want anything from you. I want to give myself to you so that you can receive my love in Jesus. Now, I am so blessed as a pastor to have a congregation who loves the Lord's Supper. But I know there are some of you watching right now who have not taken the Lord's Supper in a couple of weeks or maybe even months. Make that a priority this week. You can text me if you know my number. You can send me an email. You can find it on our website. Let's set up an appointment. Even if you can't come to our communion services that we do here at our building, I'm glad to come to your front step so we can be socially distanced and outdoors. I can stand in the cold. I don't care. I want to give you Jesus that you can be in him and know that he loves you. But there's a second thing that the voice from heaven says. It says, listen to him. Just for a second, think about listening. Right now you're listening to me, right? But in a couple minutes, I'm going to stop talking. And eventually the, end, the stream is going to end. And you're not going to be listening to me anymore. You might remember what I said. You might believe what I said. You might think about what I said, but you're not listening to me anymore. And I think God speaks this way very specifically for us. He doesn't say, this is my son whom I love. Remember his words. This is my son whom I love. Think about his words. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. When his voice is, being, is coming out into the world, whether it's through your pastor preaching or your open Bible or other Christians talking in life groups about what the scriptures say, move everything in your life to be there. Listen to him. Make as many moments of your life listening times to Jesus. Because as Mark has been harping on for us in chapter one, and will continue to do throughout the gospel, Jesus came to preach. He came so that you would hear him. And so in the face of suffering, what we can say is that every sermon, every liturgy, every Lord's Supper, every life group, every open Bible is a little transfiguration. It's that moment where Jesus is raised up in front of us, glorified in all of his power and majesty and grace for us to see and for us to savor and for us to believe in. Given to us, not because we earned it or deserved it, but because God is gracious. Whatever you're suffering with, come find certainty in his word, in his sacraments, in community with other Christians who speak those words to you. In the familiarity of the liturgy, as we continue to repeat these ancient things that the church has found valuable for almost 2,000 years. All these things are little ways to cut out of the suffering of this world for a moment. To go up the mountain with Peter, James, and John to see your Savior, even though you're going to have to come back down the mountain. So every Sunday, see as a little transfiguration. And that will give you the peace and strength to move forward in whatever you are suffering right now. But there's one last piece to this, and that's that we need to get off the mountain. (laughs) Uh, I think there are two temptations for us not to get off the mountain. And they're both in the text for us. They're actually in what Peter says when he sees the transfiguration. The text tells us that Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Two ways that we refuse to get off the mountain. One is we want to pursue more good things. And the other is that we're scared. It can be easy when you're together with God's people 
when you're hearing his word, when you're in life groups or Bible study, to want to, to hold on to that so tightly that, that you don't get off the mountain. That, that you want to be in church, you want to be with other Christians, but, but you never go back down into the dark, evil world. Now, I want every church service, every life group, every Bible study to be a place where you feel safe and loved, where you don't have to feel embarrassed about what you believe. You don't have to feel hesitant to talk about Jesus. I want that for you. And I will try my best as a pastor to make that happen. But we're also called to go down the mountain. We're not called to just be a group that gathers here on Sunday morning to talk about Jesus to each other, but a movement of people who are going out in the world with that message to share that transfigured savior with the world who needs hope in their suffering. I struggle with this. My temptation is, is to want to dig into scripture more and more and more and learn, learn, learn. It's one of my skills, but it's also one of my vices. I often think I spend far too much time studying scripture and not enough time talking to people about scripture. Maybe that's a struggle for you. Or maybe like Peter, you're frightened. You know, and you maybe even have the motivation that you should go out and tell other people, but you're scared. You're scared of what will happen. You're scared of what will happen to you. You're scared that you'll lose a friendship. I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe you're just scared because you're not sure what you know. But God says, get off the mountain. Yeah, there's going to be suffering. That's what happens to every Christian. Why not purposefully pursue suffering that actually accomplishes something for the sake of the gospel? Your options are this, suffer or suffer. One of them is pointless and dark and by yourself. The other one is for the sake of the message that saves souls. Choose this suffering, brothers and sisters. It may be scary, it may be painful, but it's worth it. So let me give you two things before we finish today. A challenge and then an encouragement. First, a challenge. In the 13th century, Marco Polo's father and uncle made an exploration to Mongolia, so modern-day China. Uh, they met the emperor of Mongolia, and the emperor of Mongolia was actually uh, really welcoming of them and of the message of Christianity that they were preaching. In fact, he was so welcoming of it that he actually sent Marco Polo's dad and uncle back to Europe to the Pope to say, bring me a hundred biblical experts, bring them all back to Mongolia so that the people of Mongolia can know about this message of Christianity. So they went back, they went back to Europe and they went to the Pope and they asked him for a hundred Christian teachers. And five years later, they made their expedition back to Mongolia with, can you guess how many teachers? Two. And those two didn't make it all the way. In fact, they turned back about halfway. Now, you know what China is like today in its relationship with the message of Christianity. And of course, it's speculation. But for a moment, could we consider what China would be like if in that day, a hundred of the most skilled Christian teachers went at the invitation of the emperor to Mongolia to preach the good news to those people? Some of us look at our city or, or our province or our country and we see that it's becoming more secular. People don't have time for Christianity. We see maybe other religions who are increasing while Christianity seems to be decreasing. And we worry about that and, and we speak about that and we maybe even complain about that. But I wonder how many of us are willing to pack up and go out to those people and actually tell them the message. 
Do you love this city? Do you love this country? Do you want to see it be a place where people who will never even know your name are able to practice their faith? Then speak about the gospel. Your children need it. Your grandchildren need it. People who will never know you need it. I pray every week that because of the work of our church and the other churches in this city, that 500 or 800 years from now, people won't look at Canada and say, that's a place that could have turned out so much better if the Christians would have spoken about their faith. But then an encouragement. Jesus did get off the mountain. Despite all the goodness that he had as a son of God, that he could have kept enjoying the presence of his father, the admiration and love of his father, that he could have kept enjoying those good things he got off the mountain. And despite knowing exactly where he was going and all the suffering that he was going to go through, more suffering than any of us have ever or will ever experience, he was willing to get off the mountain. And because he did, no matter how many times you have failed to open your mouth to speak about the gospel, no matter how many times you've seen your suffering, not as something that is here for your good, but something that's here for your ill, no matter how many times you've shaken your fist at God and said, God, I trust in you. How come this isn't different? For all the things that you've left undone, the things that you have done, Jesus get, got off the mountain so that when God looks at you today, can say, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Now from that foundation, that your past has been erased in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you can move forward, empowered by his Holy Spirit to bring this message to other people. And when you need a recharge, come back here to hear his word, to receive his sacrament, so you can move out in faith and strength. I pray that for all of us. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, you've gathered together these Christians in this congregation at this time in the world's history, in this place in the world for the sake of this city, this province, this country. We ask that you would do your will through us, that we would speak about your word to each other, but not just to each other, to the world that needs to hear it, to our friends and neighbors and our coworkers, people who we know so that they can see your glory be saved. We ask that you give us patience in affliction and your Holy Spirit to comfort us. We pray that you work a desire for the word and the sacraments in our hearts so that we know the certainty that you have called us your sons and daughters, that that will never change. We ask those things all in your name. Amen.